0: Well, I want to give a shout-out to our uh, UD campus. And uh, we're talking about our um, relationships and how they be- can become toxic. And we've looked at a couple of those relationships. The first one we looked at was just our friendships. Sometimes we can be in a toxic relationship in a friendship. Sometimes we're the toxic one, maybe. Just just saying, Right um or last weekend we talked about the family we said sometimes from no nothing uh, that we've done but we've been born into or raised in a toxic relationship in a family and and some of you uh were raised in that environment and are still trying to recover from it this weekend i want to talk about the workplace because that's something we kind of sort of have a choice on the workplace so uh some of you may be working in a in a really uh, unhealthy workplace, a toxic workplace, and maybe you don't know that. Whether you are or not, let me describe or ask you a few questions. And I think by the time we get to the end of this, you'll say yes, that's true. That characterized my relationship or, or my workspace. Would you characterize your workspace as a high stress environment? Um, is it intense all the time? Uh, Is there an atmosphere of harassment? Is there bullying and and, and conflict just kind of constantly? It's like you're walking into a soap opera and it's not funny. It's real life, right? Do the people you work with suffer from low morale? Do they seem always to be a little moody, maybe, or in a bad mood? They have little or no enthusiasm. There's very little happiness or joy. There's not a lot of laughter. Everybody's kind of got their eyes down. What about the boss? What about your boss? Uh, does he have unrealistic expectations? Um, are you regularly uh, put in impossible situations by him? Um, does he not understand you in a sense that, that you can do 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 things just great and then make one mistake and all he can see is the one mistake you make and he loves to let you know about that more than once? Is he hypocritical? And in, in a sense, where he says, "Do as I say, not as I do." Um, maybe it's even worse. He's immoral. He's dishonest. Uh, he plays favorites. Uh, maybe that describes your workplace. <coughs> How about your coworkers? Do they gossip all the time? Are they two-faced and clicky? Do they do they look for a scapegoat for their own mistakes? And usually, that, t- that tends to be you. You know, if they can. Put, put, put the blame on you, they will. Um, are they unprofessional? Are they foul mouth. Are they even crass? You say, Pastor, you know, so many of those characteristics describe my workspace and I work at home. <laughs> <clears throat> no, but really, some of us are in a tough situation. Here's where we're going this weekend. We're going to look at some young men who were placed in a very dark, toxic culture. And um, they weren't welcome guests. They were prisoners. But instead of allowing their culture or their workplace to define them, they became bright lights in a very dark place. And that's the one thing about darkness. The darker it gets, the brighter your light can shine. And these, these young men actually did that. Some of you are working in a very dark, host, hostile, toxic workplace. It's just it's just not a good place, but you need a job, and that means you need to put up with a lot of junk. For some of you, it's not a job that's it's it's not the job that's discouraging and exhausting. It's the people you work with. I mean, it's like you love your job, but you could just shift the people out. That would be great. Uh, I know some pastors that feel that way, but uh, that's the whole another sermon. I want to show you that you can uh, find help, and that's what we want to do this week. I want to look at how do we find help when we're in a a situation, a workplace, that's just difficult. Not more than difficult, It's it borders on impossible. And I want to show you how you can not only survive but thrive, and how you can grow through those things. Even in the midst of bad circumstances... How are you going to respond to the gossip, the favoritism, to the office politics, to the boss who uh, sees all your mistakes but none of your strengths, to the inappropriate behavior? More than that, how can you begin to to transform your workplace? I mean, some of us would be happy to say, if I could just have a better attitude, that would be great. But let's go a little further. What if it were possible for you to transform the workspace that you are in? So let's talk about this. Is it possible to transform your workspace? So we're going to be in the book of Daniel. So you can turn there. It's on page 667. And I'm so glad it's 667 and not 666. I think Bibles, like uh, elevators, ought not to have the 13th. They don't have the 13th floor. Sh- Bibles shouldn't have a page number 666, right? But it's 667. Now as you're turning to the book of Daniel, I want to just kind of give you a layout because some of you may understand the Bible and some of you may not. The Bible is broken into the Old Testament, 39 books, and, and into the New Testament. The Old Testament is broken into three kinds of literature. Uh, there's the historical literature, which is Genesis and, you know, talks about a little bit about a lot about the history. Then you have the poetry, which is the Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature is what they call it, the wisdom books. And then they have the prophets. So it's broken down of history, poetry, and prophecy. Three sections, all right? The biggest, one of the biggest sections is the prophets. And so the prophets are divided between the major and the minor prophets. The major prophets are like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And the minor prophets, there's 12 minor prophets. And the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is they're just shorter books. So the minor prophets are shorter books. The major prophets are larger books. Daniel happens to be the shortest of the major prophets. He is a major prophet. Uh, He's the shortest of the major prophets uh, and the last of the major prophets. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, and I want to read the first three, uh, starting at verse 3 through verse 7. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff to bring uh, to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been uh, brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of of Babylon. The king uh, assigned them a daily ration of food And wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter into the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names, and I'm not going to give you all their names, but Daniel was called (coughs) Belshazzar. So Daniel and his friends were, were taken and thrown into one of the most hostile cultures that has been you know, known to man. I mean, this was just a terribly hostile and dark culture. Uh, Babylonian. The Babylonian king at the time was King Nebuchadnezzar, and I've yet to find a, a mother who's named their child Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it's kind of out there, and it's unique, so probably not the greatest name. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, sacked Jerusalem in 586 B.C., he took nearly, uh, he took, uh, many hundreds of thousands of people into captivity. What many people don't realize is ten years earlier, he came into Jerusalem and he took out many of the, uh, wise people. He took, uh, military leaders, he took, uh, art people from the arts, people from government, wise men, uh, and women, etc. But his goal was to take these, these leaders and Babylonianized them. Basically, he wanted to change them. He wanted to transform them. He wanted to change their values. And so, essentially, what he did is, ten years before he sacked Jerusalem, he took, he took the cream of the crop, basically, and he tried to reprogram them. That's what he was, was working on. Now, they were all professionals. They were all very uh, well-educated. Uh, the first thing he did was, with, with Daniel and his friends, he changed their names. And it might seem like a minor thing, but it was a pretty important thing. Daniel means, uh, Daniel's name means God is my judge. God is my judge. Uh, his name was changed to Belchazar, which means Bel is my God. Bel is my God. So you see the significant difference here uh, of the name change. So they were already educated in their Hebrew customs. That's not, not an issue in their beliefs. Uh, but now they're being schooled in, and it's very kind of, kind of nebulous as you read through it in the Babylonian culture. And you say, well, what was that? What was the learning in the Babylonian culture? Well, uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people were uh, monotheistic, meaning they believed there was one God. If you go to to the Decalogue, if you go to the Ten Commandments, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So they're monotheistic. Babylon was polytheistic. They believed in many gods. So that's one of the things is that they were being educated uh, in polytheism, um, and what he was trying to do was the king was trying to destroy their their belief system, their culture, their monotheism. He wanted them to become he wanted them to, to begin to become Babylonian in, in their thought and in their belief system and in their morality. And so Daniel was not just being taught this. But he was mastering it. He... So imagine this. Imagine your kids going to school and they're not just learning things, but they're learning like dark things. And, and that's essentially what's going on with Daniel. But Daniel's not just learning those dark things. He's mastering them. He's mastering them. He's mastering the Babylonian polytheism beliefs. He's a 4.0 student in Babylonian culture and beliefs. And, and uh, you say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. How in the world could a young man go into that and that can't come out? Well, he did. So the question is, and that's really what we're going to look at, is how do we live in a hostile culture? Because you say, well, the educational system, our culture, our American culture, this world culture is so dark, it's getting darker. What do we do? And I just want to point you to Daniel. Daniel was in one of the darkest cultures ever, one of the darkest cultures ever and he was being programmed that the whole idea was you're going to we're going to program you we're going to babylonize you we're going to change you you're going to be a different person when you come out so this is one of the major questions we want to wrestle with this weekend is how do we live in a hostile culture when you enter your workplace you're entering a hostile culture many of you are entering a hostile culture you are a follower of jesus christ your values are different you you, you march to the beat of a different drummer and you're a different person than many of your coworkers. It's not that you have to say anything. It's just who you are. You have a different North Star, right? And at the very least, you want to have a positive impact on your work, workplace. And, and by the way, some of you aren't working yet. You don't have a job, but you're in a school environment and it may be that situation that you have an opportunity to transform. The prophet Jeremiah gave the exiles uh, that were going into Babylon instruction of how they were to deal with this dark culture because basically Jeremiah says this is going to happen this Babylonian captivity is going to happen, and here 's what you need to do here 's how you're supposed it basically he 's saying here 's how you're supposed to deal with this Babylonian culture when it comes. so I want you to jump over there this is Jeremiah chapter twenty nine on page five ninety six and he 's writing to the captives. And he's saying, you're going to be taken captive into Babylon. And this is what I want you to do. This is what the Lord wants you to do. And he's telling me to tell you. And this is what he says. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 4. This is on page 596. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives that He has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Wow. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Because what Jeremiah is saying is basically that you have, and what we come down to is we have a couple of options when we deal with a dark culture, whether it's a workspace or our culture. Daniel and his friends could either separate from the culture, condemn it, and wait to, wait to be rescued, which some of the prophets were saying, don't worry, this isn't going to last. You're going to be rescued. And essentially Jeremiah says, they're false prophets. You're not going to be rescued. This is going to last for 70 years. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years. You're not good. There's no rescue party coming. This is it. So they could either condemn the culture and wait for the rescue party that was never going to come, or they could engage and transform the culture. So Jeremiah's letter became kind of a blueprint for Daniel's life. Settle down, plant gardens, have family, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Don't listen to the Hebrew prophets among you. Pray for the city, because if the city prospers, so will you. And that's exactly what God wants us to do in our city and in our workplaces and in our schools. Here's the first principle, I think. You say, well, how do, we, how do we deal with a toxic culture? And I'm just, I'm, all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you that Daniel and his friends were in a tremendously toxic culture. They're in a very bad place. And maybe you are, your are working, you say, well, what do I do? Well, you do the same thing Daniel did in his culture. You do the same thing Daniel did when he got up every day and he basically had to learn everything about the black magic and the spells and astrology and all that stuff of the Babylonian. And he just learned it. He mastered it. He mastered it to the point that he was the wisest of all the wise men. But here's the principle. God has placed you in in your workplace culture to engage it and ultimately to transform it. Not to become like it. And, And that's, you know, over and over, that's the theme of the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel in a really dark place. And... Daniel and his friends are shining out like like laser beams. I mean, they're just like they're bright lights, right? It, it and it's because they're they're not a They're not allowing the culture to transforming transform them. They're transforming the culture, and I'll show you kind of hints that that's happening. So that's the first principle. God was basically telling the exiles, "I." Brought this captivity on because of your disobedience, but here's what I'm going to do with your captivity. I'm going to use you to transform Babylon. You're going to transform it. Don't separate from it. Don't be but but live life there. Enjoy. Celebrate life. And have an influence, have an impact on your culture. That's what he wants you to do. So, God doesn't want you to become like the culture, but he wants you to transform it. Celebrate the culture, become part of it, and but yet not become part of it, so it transforms who you are and your belief system. Remember, that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, ro- guy; his goal was to 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 brainwash them, change, them. but he never did. Now, jump jump over to page six seventy two. This is Daniel six. We have a new king. One of the things you'll notice in the book of Daniel, Daniel is like. <laughs> there's Nebuchadnezzar, and then there's Darius, and there's all these different kings, and so Daniel has just has these different kings he's dealing with, and let's just be honest, some of them are just absolutely cracky nuts. They are just absolute lunatics. They, I mean, literally, a Nebuchadnezzar is out grazing in a field like an animal at one point. I mean, you can read through, you read about it in the Book of Daniel. He, he just goes nuts um, because of of pride. But we're we're talking about Darius. This is years have passed. And in chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, Darius the Mede uh, decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise his office, officers and to protect the king's interests. Now, let's just see what's going on here. You have 120 provinces. You have somebody who's over each one of those. So there's 120 leaders there. Then you have three that are over the 120. So Daniel's one of the three, okay? That's kind of, he's doing it pretty good. It's a good management principle, right? Leader over leaders, right? But notice what happens. Daniel soon proved himself to be more capable than all the other administrators and high officials. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire, Then the other administrators and high officials began searching for some fault in any way, uh, in in the way that Daniel was handling government uh, affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Did you see what they just said about him? He was faithful always responsible and completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection to the rules of his religion. Now, this is the famous chapter of Daniel and the lion's den. You might want to read that story a little later. It's a fabulous story. But I wanted to focus on what what led up to the lion's den So they have this new ruler, Darius. And as I said before, these rulers, I mean, you just don't know what you're getting with them. Some of them are just psycho. And literally, they are psycho. When you look in the dictionary, you could have these guys' pictures there. And it would be, yeah, that's what it is. And yet, that's what Daniel had to deal with. (coughs) You talk about bad bosses. And yet, Daniel still outshines his peers, the kingdom is divided by Darius and Daniel begins to outshine the other two, his peers. And Darius basically plans on placing Daniel over everything because he just so excels and he's so trustworthy and he just he gets the job done. One of the other things, and I don't have time to go into this, Daniel was very winsome. He was very smart, very intelligent. You know, the Bible tells us to be, um, to be wise and to be careful And Daniel was. He was very wise and he was very careful about how he carried himself. And you can read a little bit about that as you read through the book. You'll see times where Daniel used a lot of wisdom and he was very intelligent. We don't have time to go into that. But he comes to a place where, can you imagine this? Imagine if your worst enemies basically all banded together and said, we're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to get rid of this woman. And 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 so everybody, see if you can find anything, any any anything. If you can find anything to get him, we'll get him. You know. And can you imagine having your worst enemies just looking for any slip up, any problem, anything? And that's what they do. And yet they come to a place they say the only weakness he has is with his religion. He's not on board with this whole Babylonian worship thing. He's still monotheistic, right? So they um, get together. And again, the, the, the statement is so striking. In verse 4, Daniel was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. He had a stellar record. His only weakness, they found, was his devotion to God. So they made a plan. And here's what they do. They say, you know, King, you're the greatest. And <laughs> the king says, really? You think so? Yeah, you're the greatest. You know what we ought to do? <clears throat> we ought to have a time... Dedicated so that everybody bows down to you and worships you. And everybody should do it. And if they don't do it, they should die. You really think so? Yeah, of course. You deserve that. So they do. And look at how they did it. Verse 7. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown in the lion's den. So the decree is signed. It can't be changed. Essentially, it's the decree of the Medes and the Persians, which basically says once it's signed, you can't edit it, you can't redact it. It is what it is. Now, he's already determined that he's not going to compromise his relationship. You can read about that in chapter 1. But I love, I love these next, this next verse, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, He went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day. Notice what it says next. Just as he had always done. Just as he had always done giving thanks to God. Here he is in a dark culture. Here he is. He knows that if he does this, he's dead. He gets caught doing this. It's, you know, He's dead. And this, what's amazing here is this. Now let's just, let me tell you what happens. So, they go to the king. Then they tell him, somebody has done this. Well, the king yeah, goes into a fury and and uh, says, well, it's Daniel. And the king is just immediately struck by this because, somehow or another Daniel has has kindled a relationship with this king he has been so faithful to this king and, and he's been a good leader and he doesn't agree with everything the king does probably most of what the king does but the king is but if the king realizes he can't and they remind him you can't change the law we got you and I think he finally realized he was snookered so he throws Daniel into the lion's den and the king couldn't sleep all night. He couldn't sleep. He comes down early in the morning and yells, Daniel, are you still there? And this is what Daniel says in verse 22. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. Now, what he's saying is, I will respect your authority, but I'm not going to worship you. And that's a fine line, but it was held by Daniel. Here's the thing. What his enemies thought was his greatest weakness was his only strength. Do you get that? Do you get that what, what they thought was his only weakness, because he was a moral guy, he had a good record, his only weakness was his devotion to God, but that was his only strength. By the way, in case you think that lions were docile, yeah, read the rest of the chapter. Here's the second principle: Your relationship to Jesus, your only source of strength, will be seen as a sign of weakness by many of your coworkers. But it's your only strength. You need to walk in every day and say, "God, as an act of worship to you, I, wor- I work today, and I'm going to put up with the politics and with the uh, the, uh, the whatever it is." but I'm doing it as a way to worship you because you're my only strength. You're my only hope. You are what give me joy and give me peace and give me life. You are it. And that's what Daniel did. In a dark place, he flourished. One more more glimpse in the book of Daniel and we'll be done. Turn over to page 669. Back to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now Daniel's not mentioned here but his three friends are. But had Daniel been there, he would have been he would have run right with his friends. By the way, there's a whole lesson there about choosing good friends, right? Don't have time to do it, but there's a whole thing about choosing the right friends. Daniel 31 or chapter 3 verse 1. And then I'm going to jump down to verse uh, 6. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue ninety feet tall and nine feet wide, and set it on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And then we jumped down. So all the officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, "People of all races and nations and language, listen to the king's command. What you hear when you <coughs> excuse me when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the, lyre, the harp, the." The pipes and other musical instruments bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Some of the wise men pointed out that Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, weren't bowing down to the statue as instructed. So they bring this to Nebuchadnezzar's attention, and Nebuchadnezzar just flips out in rage. And verse 3, he, they're given uh, a one last chance. Verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, because they basically said, he basically heats up the furnace. He says, this is your last chance. He says, you're either going to bow down now or you're going in the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Oh, so these are three men that basically say, we're not bowing down to you. We will respect your authority, but we will not bow down and worship. It's a line we will not cross. We'll not do it. You can't make us do it. We won't do it. And basically they say, and God... God can rescue us from this. No question in our mind. We believe God can rescue us. But notice what they say next. But even if he doesn't, we want to be clear, crystal clear to you, your majesty, respect, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. You see what they're saying? Though you, though, though you slay me, I will worship him. I'll die. This is a, you know, I, I used the phrase jokingly because this was a gun-to-the-head moment where they just basically were saying, pull the trigger because we're not bound out. It's not going to happen. Throw us in. Now, I want to meet these guys in heaven. They're my heroes. They're absolutely my heroes. Um, he he heats heats the furnace so hot that people that are heating the furnace, some of them die. He throws them in the furnace and something remarkable happens. Um, they're, they're, (laughs) They're brought out of the furnace and they don't even smell like they've been in a furnace. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I think I was running in an there and with my mom, and she, we were going to get donuts or something. And I ran into a donut shop. This is when you could smoke in donut shops, and it looked like it was foggy inside the donut shop, and it wasn't really foggy. And I think I was in there for two minutes, and I smelled like I I, I smelled like I had been smoking for the last 20 years, all day long. These guys came out, and they smelled fresh, bounty fresh, right? And they just, they, felt they, they just were clean. And that was remarkable. But the more remarkable thing was this. Look at verse 24. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold the phone. Did not we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, Your Majesty, we certainly did. One, two, three. They replied, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. That's an amazing passage of Scripture. Here's the principle. When you enter your fiery furnace, look for Jesus. He's in there with you. And maybe that's the one thing you needed to hear this weekend, that no matter how dark, your workplaces, your school is, what the situation is. Jesus is in the furnace with you. He is there. He not only meets you in the furnace, though, and this is where we're going to close, He was thrown into a cosmic furnace. He was just tossed into a furnace that was hotter than ever. He took the heat of hell for you and for me It was thrown in because of our sin and our rebellion. And and what he did was, because he went into the furnace, we were bound, but we were set free. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar? They were walking around. They were unbound. They were bound when they were thrown in, but they were set free. What Christ does when 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 he when he threw himself into the cosmic furnace of judgment, and he threw himself into the and suffered the the, the the fire of hell for you and 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 was punished because you sinned and I sinned, and he lived the life we should have and died the death we should die. Because of that, he set us free, and we come out not with even a smell, not even a tinge of smoke that we've ever been in the furnace. We're just free. We're forgiven. We're pure. We're holy because of what He did for us. He was thrown in because of your rebellion in mine, because of your sin in mine, and He came out of the fiery furnace, and He's alive today. And because He allowed Himself to go into the fiery furnace, we come out. Set free and clean completely. That's the hope we have. Let me give you a, f- a few final thoughts as you enter your workplace this week. Look at your workplace. It could be, doesn't, see, the whole point is, doesn't really matter how dark it is. Now, listen, I'm going to say this about marriage, and I have to put a couple disclaimers. If you're in a marriage where you're getting beaten, you need to get out of the house, right? If you're in a, a, a relationship, that, a home that's not safe, where there's there's some a significant abuse going on, you need to get out. You need to do that. If you're in a workplace where you're 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 in jeopardy and there's safety issues and that, you need to get out. Okay. So there's my disclaimer, but my, what I'm saying is, if you're in a workplace, it's just dark, it's dirty, it's filthy, it's immoral, it's and and you may need to get out, but what I'm saying is, what can you do? And and here's what we're, what I'm, I think that God has wants you to wrestle with: that engage and transform it, build gardens, plant families, just you know, and live your life and and find a place there that is you can transform. But don't become like it. See, the one thing you see through the book of Daniel is Daniel never becomes like. Babylon. and neither do his friends they 're not like Babylon at all they 're living there but they 're not in it they're they 're engaging they 're absolutely engaging because kings are going i can 't sleep because I threw this innocent guy into a lion 's den right they're, they're they got a crazy king that 's going he 's proclaiming stuff like I see God in the furnace. I mean, this is because there are guys that are faithful that are saying, I don't really care what you do. I am not going to worship. I'm not going to become like the culture. The Bible says to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and not allow the world to squeeze us into the mold. So when we go in, try to go in there and say, I'm not going to allow this workplace... To mold me and to make me and to transform me. I'm going to be transformed by... And how did Daniel do it? He says every day, three times a day, he was on his face before God. Thank God this place is dark. And I need you to light me up. I don't want my candle to go out. I don't want to lose the flicker of fire. And it will only come as you engage in God's Word and engage with God in prayer and devotion. So that's number one. Number two. Rely heavily on your only source of strength. the 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 enemies came and said, "The only way we're going to get him is with his God." And people will mock you. They'll make fun of you. They'll They'll say, "Oh, you're think you're better than us and all that." And you know what? You may not have said a word. It's just you just don't join in with the gossip. You don't join in with the dirty jokes. You don't join in with the with with knocking people down behind their backs and just you just don't do that. You're a hard worker. You you plug in. And, you know you come in and you give you know a day's work for a day's wage. You you just do that. You're honest. You can be trusted. You show up. You do what you're supposed to do and you do it well. Daniel excelled at what he did. But but they may come to you and, and they may make fun of you and and that's that's the the spiritual battle that's going on. They want you to hide it. They want you to cloak it. You don't have to walk in with a Bible and say, I just want to let everyone know I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, don't put a bullseye on your back. You don't need to do that. Daniel didn't do that. If you see Daniel, Daniel's pretty clever. The Bible says to be harmless as doves and wise as serpents and that's what Daniel wants that's what their friends want they didn't get out there and demand their rights or anything but they were very wise and they were very they they did it well here's the last thing you go into work this week maybe tonight you go into your fiery furnace look for him because he's there he's there maybe you don't see him because you weren't looking for him there but he's there And he wants to not just transform your workplace. And maybe the transformation won't be as dramatic as some of what we see. But here's what you will see. He will transform you. He will change you. And you'll be a different person. Hey, let me tell you what's going to happen in the years to come. The world's going to get darker. And it's going to be harder to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to say, am I going to curse the culture? Am I going to curse the world? Am I going to try to do a holy huddle somewhere? Or am I going to do what Jeremiah said? When the world gets dark and life doesn't go the way you want it and you're in a group of people that just don't get you, plant gardens. Enjoy life. Pray for the company. Pray for the city, because when it prospers, so will you. But remember that he sees, not only sees you, but he's there with you in the furnace. And most of all, remember that he jumped into the cosmic furnace for you. to set you free. So you're free. Your co-workers may not be, but you are. And if they get set free, what could God do in that workplace, huh? And maybe, just as God wanted Daniel and his friends and the other people that went into captivity to transform that Babylonian culture, maybe that's what God wants you to do in your workplace. Not maybe, probably. Stand with me, let's pray. So, Father, we don't have answers for all these scenarios, but we have a general direction, and we have a path, We have a friend who will never leave us no matter how hot it gets, no matter how hard it gets. And he's already proven that because he set us free. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that no matter what workplace we go into this week, we can worship you in our work. That worship doesn't just take place On the weekends when we gather together to sing and to praise you, whether it's in the Kennedy campus or the university campus or whatever campus, it takes place in everything that we do. It takes place in our work and how we carry ourselves and how we speak to others and whether we treat them with dignity and respect. And when it gets dark, Father... Help us to look for You. Because I believe that when we look for You, You will be found. So thank You. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.